Welcome to the GRC Professional Podcast, where we discuss all things GRC. Companies learn from the passions of the escalation, de-escalation as a form of opportunity by saying that if I do this, what consequence? So it becomes a chess game. Mm-hmm. Rather, I would prefer like a wheel model so that the regulators can use all the tools and then use it strategically, even use tools, not just one, but multiple tools so that the companies would have to face multiple problems. In this edition of the GRC Professional Podcast, I speak to Dr. Angus Young from Hong Kong Baptist University, who talks a little bit about the regulatory pyramid. Welcome to the GRC Professional Podcast. My name is Kwame Slusher, and I'm the editor of the GRC Professional Magazine and GRC Professional Online. And with me, I have Angus Young from Hong Kong Baptist University. Hello. So I'm reaching out to you because one of the things that has come out from the new year, um, obviously, is people waiting for the Royal Commission and sort of a bit worried about what regulation that is going to bring, um, as well as people looking at, I guess, the results of the Productivity Commission report. Um, There was an AFR article recently that sort of suggested that there is a bit of fear that there might be over-regulation as a result of the proceedings that have taken place. Um, and while I know this is not a previously discussed question, um, I just wanted to guess your take on that. Do, do you think that there is a risk that there might be too much regulation coming out of these processes? Yes, I do believe that there's a risk of over-regulation. Actually, I think more so in terms of over-enforcement, mm-hmm. because the uh, Royal Commission's um, main criticism is that the laws are there, but they're just not enforced. Mm. And when the uh, instruments are there, they're not properly used. And so I suspect that the key regulators might be a bit gung-ho or overzealous in enforcement uh, because they're also given a new budget to do so. And with the election looming, I think the pressure is even greater in Australia for that to come. So I think the fear is more over-enforcement than over-regulation. You wrote an article in last year's edition um, looking at the regulatory pyramid um, and some of the merits and challenges that go with that. Um, And, you know, you looked at it in the context of the Hain Royal Commission. So I guess it'd help if we just started by you explaining what is the regulatory pyramid. Uh, The regulatory pyramid was developed in um, 1992. It was a co-authored book by one of the main authors, distinguished Professor John Bresley. Now, he's at ANU and he's very distinguished and he's more like the guru of regulations. Uh, in fact, this regulatory framework is not only used in Australia, but it's also used in the UK by many regulators in the UK. So he starts off with interviewing uh, many businesses and found that uh, many business individuals want to be doing the whole thing. So he starts with the bottom layer is a uh, virtuous actor and then moving up to escalating and if you're moving towards the bottom end would completely self-regulate and then if it fails then the upper end would be things like warning persuasion by regulators for companies to do the right thing and then if those fail uh, will come things like undertaking if that fails you'll be civil lawsuits and ultimately will be criminal uh, prosecutions uh, and then removal of license removal of license could mean that even the company could liquidate it because if some companies are run by license, especially in the financial sector, without those licenses, their business or their business would not exist. And therefore, that pyramid 
works on a very good structure of escalation and de-escalation. And his argument was that we have to use the major end at the bottom end most, which is uh, of a virtuous actor, they would self-regulate themselves. Uh, conceptually, I completely uh, agree with this idea. However, in practice, companies tend not to do that way. So even though they say they want to be virtuous, but their actions and their commissions have shown the opposite. In part, maybe because that as directors or boards, you know, their primary goal is to ensure profit maximization, which is embedded in not only company law, but in economics uh, of corporations. So, mm. uh, and of course, shareholders want to see the deal, the, the, the dividends and the profit of the company for the investments to grow, and that's understandable. So I guess, despite what they say they want to do, um, the pressure of needing to perform in profits uh, does change and alter how the permit is being used so it becomes more opportunistic as what the Royal Commission have shown that even with undertaking times, even with certain uh, uh, penalties or fines, uh, they carry on doing it as if it was a cost of running this, so like a sunk cost. So if it was fine, it was a sunk cost. If they were from undertaking, it was like a sunk cost of doing business with the ultimate goal of just pure profit. Right, right. And of course, you proposed um, an alternative way of doing that in the article. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes. Um, I thought alternatively, uh, since the main culprit or one of the culprit is uh, profit maximization, um, we should perhaps change that to corporate sustainability or corporate social responsibility. Now, even though this is not a new concept, but in Australia, it's so fragmented and just purely an idea and not quite very much uh, applied. The reason for this concept is important is because if companies have an obligation to the environment and wider society, the profit maximization goal becomes secondary. Or, in fact, the preach found a, a mixture to actually uh, hit two goals. So, Section 172 of the Companies Act in the UK stipulates that the directors have to act in the best interest to promote the success of the company and that means that the long-term success uh, of the company and the long-term success would include um, uh, and what we call an enlightened shareholder's view that meant that directors look at the likely consequences of any decisions in the long term, mm -hmm. the interests of the company's employees, fostering business relationships with suppliers, customers, impact on the community and environment and as well as uh, maintaining reputation of for high standards of business conduct so these are things in section 172 that australia didn't have despite australia's attempt to look at csr uh, and so that forms the core of my suggestion that the company should switch from profit maximization to csr and for regulators instead of escalating and de-escalating companies learn from the passions of the escalation and de-escalation as a form of opportunity by saying that if I do this, we're the consequence. So it becomes a chess game. Mm -hmm. Rather, I would prefer like a wheel model so that the regulators can use all the tools and then use it strategically, even use tools, not just one, but multiple tools so that the companies would have to face multiple prongs, not just being opportunity by negotiating you know, a de-escalation, but, you know, in the background, continue to do what they do. 
So by using multiple prongs, the companies would be guessing what regulators doing. The regulators would have full disposal of their arsenal, although there's a risk of over-enforcement. But with more tools at the same time that you use, the threat becomes higher, the risk becomes higher. So there's more incentive for companies to comply, not only in form but in substance, than just to play the escalation and de-escalation game with the regulators. And, I mean, how will the resource constraints of the regulators be, you know, make it difficult for them to achieve what what you're suggesting? I think the regulators, first of all, should sit down with business to to talk um, about CSR to say that's that's the the aim Mm. that will take off edge of the pressure for directors to to draw high profits. So the first thing the negotiation has to begin is to talk about is CSR as the main goal rather than profit maximization. And then second, ideally, uh, legal reform would be great to insert a equivalent of 172 sections of the Companies Act in the UK for for Australia. However, if that uh, may be difficult, the short term could be the key regulators like APRA, ASIC, ACCC sit down and then produce a focus of the enforcement or a statement to say that CSR is something that they will look at uh, when they're considering enforcement. So if companies can demonstrate that they've done so uh, compliance with the goal towards CSR, uh, that would go as part of the consideration of what the regulators would choose for enforcement. Uh, So that could be easily ironed out by the three regulators sitting down and making such statement and obviously with the blessing of the treasurer. Uh, that could be the first step. And then businesses, because we already have the listed companies in the forthcoming um, uh, changes in corporate governance principles at the at SAX, has really have more emphasis on things like culture and you know CSR. So uh, the, the template is already there, but of course this template would have to apply to uh, non-listed companies in a, in a more lighter manner. Uh, but that's to be ironed out between the businesses and uh, the regulators. But I think the first step has to come by the regulators to say, if that's the goal of company, what they should pursue, um, clearly uh, the shareholders would have to accept that's the regulator's ultimate aim. I, I think that would reduce the cost of you know, over-enforcement, over-regulation, and yet bring about the desired effect of you know, uh, corporate social responsibility rather than corporate profit maximization. Right, right. And of course, you did mention compliance in that um, solution there. And I think one of the other things that I guess comes out of people being a bit concerned about over-regulation is that 2019 has also been marked according, at least in Australia, as the year of risk and compliance, as in um, there'll be more and more investment in that area. Um, of course, the question of whether there will that means that they'll just be throwing more bodies at the problem or whether they are taking a considered I guess, approach and understanding what compliance actually is, I guess, is a completely different question. Um, do you think that we will need to have, before we can have these relationships, this closer relationship with the regulators and regulators changing their mould and businesses engaging, do you think that understanding compliance's role in a clearer sense will help move this process along? Yes, I think so. Um, I think if the emphasis has changed, uh, as I mentioned before, uh, the important part of compliance professionals would be seen as partnership to achieve those goals 
rather than just you know throwing on more bodies uh, into the problem or more money to the problem. I agree that throwing more money or more people into it doesn't necessarily solve it. Um, it must come with smart design. So the compliance design would have to adapt to be smarter. And as well as, obviously, everything comes from the top. So at the governance level, there must be clear compliance goal as one. Because at the moment, uh, the ASX principles doesn't include the clear word compliance in there. So mm. maybe it's an assumed thing, but uh, the only one that has a, a clear wordings of compliance is the King 4 report, which is a South African corporate governance uh, principles that actually lists compliance into good uh, corporate governance. So I think a statement there would also help the uh, compliance professionals, but uh, the compliance professionals must be given more authority, not necessarily more money, but more authority, more say into the compliance of all the staff and the company. So it's not just a tick list, they are not just there as an accessory, they are part of decision making, uh, They may uh, their concerns go straight up to the top and everyone would know that it is an important issue not just something to take off the list. So the first thing is that compliance professionals must be empowered, must be given more recognition, must be given more powers to do what is good for the company, not just like a burden that if a compliance professional comes, because in my class when I teach compliance, uh, my students will always tell me it's very difficult. I said, in fact, a good compliance profession would be someone that's not like in the company. If people see you and says, ah, that person again, that means that we're doing our job, mm. you know, we're doing what the company should do. It may be annoying, it may be displeasing, but it is for ultimately the benefit of the company, the employees, the shareholders and their directors. There's a win-win situation that the company must recognise. Right, right. So um, I guess going back, I guess more on topic, um, you are going to be writing a part two to this regulation piece, um, I believe, in the next edition of the GRC Professional magazine. And I mean, I don't know if you even thought about it yet in any depth, so I might be putting you on the spot here. But um, uh, are there any sneak peeks to some of the things that you'll be touching on? Yes, I, I'm trying to see um, from the regulatory permit side, uh, I've mentioned the first part. On the second uh, part, I'll try to conceive or think of some uh, maybe clues towards how, on the compliance side, we could match that uh, regulatory wheel, if I want to put it that term, mm -hmm. uh, how to better comply. So that the design of the compliance is not just monitoring and managing, but making it you know easier for compliance professionals to uh, work and to carry out you know what they're supposed to do. Uh, so I'm trying to see how the companies could form a partnership with compliance professional to achieve those ends. Uh, but at the moment, um, I'm still at looking at focusing on the conduct. So I'm trying to see if uh, the conduct could be mapped out. For instance, at the beginning, uh, the, the mapping out of conduct. So companies face multiple regulations from multiple agencies. So the first thing of the mapping out is important and then mapping out by showing what conduct, which part of conduct should be looked at and what is the ideal conduct. So compliance professionals could perhaps look at what's ideal to recommend to the company, not just, you know, you must do this. But because we've always been emphasizing is beyond compliance, it should be our goal. But there's no articulation apart from including ethics. So I'm trying to look at maybe how we should look at what is beyond compliance. 
uh, into what's an ideal compliance situation that the compliance professional could spell out to the company and not just saying that this is the law and you just do it. And so the company would have a better understanding or the employees would have understanding, okay, this is the highest standard we achieve and the compliance professional must help develop that code. Uh, the ASX do uh, ask companies, recommend uh, that they develop a code of conduct and perhaps the uh, compliance professional could assist in this code of conduct to ensure that it's beyond compliance and it will help the process and I'll try to match off with the compliance uh, regulatory view instead of the pyramid. Right, right, excellent. And this is also the time of year where everybody's making predictions of what they think will happen in 2019 and beyond. So I thought I'd see if you'd be willing to give me a few, I guess, predictions or speculations of what you think are going to be some of the key issues in risk and compliance for 2019. Um, the, the key issues, I guess, is the one thing would always stay, which is financial crimes. I think that would become more active. Hmm. But as well as down the horizon, uh, intellectual property, because the US and, uh, and China situation, uh, the Chinese would obviously uh, push up uh, intellectual property and data, perhaps even data protection. And of course, in Hong Kong, we just had uh, last year, uh, Cathay Pacific did doing a big oops in the uh, breach of data protection. But unfortunately, in Hong Kong, uh, the data protection uh, laws are not as uh, comprehensive uh, or as strict as the EU. But aside from uh, legal reform, I think that uh, data protection, intellectual property in Hong Kong and China would be a growing issue, financial crime. And for Australia, it's obviously the Royal Commissions and the fallout Royal Commissions, as in the remuneration structure would be mm -hmm. one, uh, conduct would be the other. Mm -hmm. So uh, even though the areas of these are different in Australia and Hong Kong and China, but the smarter regulation, better uh, 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 compliance or smarter compliance, if yeah. I can put it that way, I think this would be the focus and obviously it goes with risk. So as well as there is also a downside to that too, with the global economy slowing as predicted just yesterday by the IMF uh, because of the trade tensions and of course Brexit, mm -hmm. uh, companies may uh, be under more financial pressure to make cost-effective uh, compliance. So yeah. I think my predictions for 2019 include better, more cost-effective ways that may include uh, regulatory technology. So how to weave regulatory technology with compliance professionals, what they're doing, so there's a greater partnership between technology and persons would be another area where I think in 2019 would quickly develop. Hey, okay, well, excellent, Angus. That, thank you so much for your time this afternoon and definitely hope that our listeners take those predictions and speculations in mind. Um, and I hope to have you on the GRC Professional Podcast again sometime soon. Thank you for having me, as usual. Thank you for listening to the GRC Professional Podcast. This podcast was produced by the GRC Institute and the original music was written by Rob Neary. 